Hey there, friends. How's it going? My name is Kyle Devlin, and I am the host of this podcast. This is the Having a Blast podcast. Having a Blast is a pop punk and emo podcast where we'll be doing a deep dive on important albums and bands. We'll also be speaking with band members, producers, and friends. If you happen to like what you hear, if you could do me a huge favor, perhaps give us a five-star review. That just really helps get the algorithms working in our favor, and then more people can hear the podcast. Or Another thing that really helps us out is if you share it with a friend. If you've got a friend that enjoys this type of music, pop punk and indie, I'd greatly appreciate it. All right, without further ado, let's get into it. Hey there, friends. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm excited to be talking about one of my favorite records of all time. We're going to do a deep dive on Newfound Glory, often referred to as the self-titled record from Newfound Glory, the first official full-length for a major label, not their first official full-length. Nothing Gold Can Stay was their first full-length on drive-thru records, and I remember exactly where I was when I first heard the self-titled record. It was at one of those listening stations at a 7th Heaven in Lawrence, Kansas, and I remember hearing Better Off Dead for the first time, just that opening riff plus the drums, that double time beat. And I'm pretty sure my jaw hit the floor because that was the first time I think I had ever heard the double time beat, besides Enema of the State, recorded so well and it was so punchy and the recording was so amazing. And I am just in love with this record. a summer record. It's a record that I put on and drive on the highway with the windows down. Anytime it gets warm out for the first time, I've made countless friends talking about this record and connecting over this record. So let's just get into it. Newfound Glory, formerly a Newfound Glory. And if you've got an early copy of Nothing Gold Can Stay, you can see that they were originally called a Newfound Glory and then they shortened it for their major label debut. Is an American pop punk band from Coral Springs, Florida, formed in the year 1997. The band currently consists of Jordan Pundik, Pundik, lead vocals, Ian Grushka, bass guitar, Chad Gilbert, lead guitar and backing vocals, and Cyrus Baluki on drums. Longtime rhythm guitarist and lyricist Steve Klein departed from the band in late 2013. And if you want to know that drama-filled story, I would just Google it. There's a lot of articles online. I'm not going to talk about it here. During their lengthy recording career, the band have released 10 studio albums, one live album, two EPs, and four, count them, four cover albums. Three from the screen to your stereo EPs or albums, and then they also did a Ramones cover album, which is really cool, actually, and I listened to that one quite a bit. After forming in 1997, Newfound Glory released their debut studio album, Nothing Gold Can Stay, in the year 1999. The band then released their self-titled major label debut, and that's what we're going to be talking about a year later, which is kind of shocking, and that is with the album's 
song Hit or Miss peaking at number 15, or it did peak at number 15 on the Alternative Songs chart. In 2002, the band became mainstream with their album Sticks and Stones, with the album's hit My Friends Over You, and the group's popularity continued through 2004 with the album Catalyst, of which the video for All Downhill From Here was nominated for a VMA for Breakthrough Video of the Year. They went on to release a bunch of albums afterwards. Coming Home is kind of controversial Newfound Glory record. I was just talking to my friend Ben Wint of the Way Way Back fame about how we really enjoy Coming Home, and that's not everybody's favorite record, but that's one that I revisit quite a bit. Kind of a departure in sound, different producer when they went to work with somebody else beyond Neil Avron in 2006. Emerging as part of the second wave of pop punk in the late 1990s, music critics generally consider Newfound Glory to be a key pioneer of the pop punk genre, often labeled as some of the godfathers of pop punk. As such, the band are considered highly influential in developing the subgenre Easycore and beyond. Newfound Glory, like I said, often referred to as the self-titled record. This is the second studio album and major label debut by American pop punk band of the same name, Newfound Glory. It was produced and mixed by Neil Avron, and this was kind of my introduction to Neil Avron and his brilliance in not only this type of music, but things that he had previously done, and I knew he had worked on a couple of Everclear records, so that was my first introduction to him as his production, but I didn't really understand or know who he was until really diving into this particular record. Newfound Glory was released on September 26th, 2000, so right after the summer, through Drive Through and MCA Records, and Drive Through had a deal with MCA where MCA could grab their bands and upstream, and Newfound Glory was definitely making waves in 1999 after Nothing Gold Can Stay came out, as well as earlier in the year 2000 when they put out their first cover EP from the screen to your stereo, and I really enjoyed that as well. Cyrus, the drummer, mentions on the Krista Makes podcast that they were actually upstream to MCA and officially signed to a major label right after they released the From the Screen to Your Stereo EP, that first one. So it was kind of a whirlwind. It sounds like they released an album, a full length, in 1999 after being a band for two years, and then literally within six months, they had upstream to a major label. So I'm sure it was exciting for a bunch of young kids from Florida. I first saw Newfound Glory play. They opened up for Less Than Jake. I saw them play at the Bottleneck in Lawrence, Kansas, and they just blew me away. They were an amazing opener band. Less Than Jake was such a fun live band. It's hard to believe that I actually saw them in such a tiny venue back in the day, but that's where they were. The other two openers for that particular tour, kind of a fun retelling of this show, was Anti-Flag, the band Anti-Flag, as well as Teen Idols. And Teen Idols is a band that I think doesn't get enough credit or get enough love. A band on Honest Dons, kind of a Ramonesy band, but they had all these three-part harmonies and they had a female singer. And Matt Drastic actually plays drums in Less Than Jake now, but you should definitely check out Teen Idols. That was a really cool, fun tour. So it was Newfound Glory, Anti-Flag, Teen Idols, and then Less Than Jake in the bottleneck, which I'm not sure what the cap is at the bottleneck, but it was a smaller show. And I remember the Mr. Skull friend that would accompany Less Than Jake on tour literally was doing the thing where he spit fire in that tiny little venue. It's amazing that it didn't catch the ceiling on fire. (laughs) Great times though. I remember that show well. It was that night that I actually met Chad Gilbert for the first time and we hung out by the bar and chatted for a bit and it was a lot of fun and he was very nice. The Newfound Glory self-titled record features 
features a new recording of the band's breakthrough single, Hit or Miss, which was also recorded on Nothing Gold Can Stand. I think that was the first song that I really latched on to by the band. I remember I had an early drive through Records compilation, and it had the song Third and Long on it, so I always reminisce fondly when I think about that particular song on Nothing Gold Can Stay. But I really liked Hit or Miss as well, the album's opener. And I didn't realize it, but Cyrus actually wrote that riff, the classic T chord opening riff, and that's pretty cool. It has a bit of a cadence that you would expect from a drummer, because he's probably thinking in terms of rhythm when he plays guitar. And if you watch any of the live acoustic performances, a lot of times Cyrus will play with them, play guitar, which is pretty cool. The album was later certified gold by the RIAA, the Recording Industry Association of America, with shipments of over 500,000 units. So they sold half a million copies of this record. And it's surprising to think they didn't sell more because I really feel like this record should have been bigger than it was. I know Sticks and Stones was their breakout record, but this is the one that really hooked me. And in many ways, I think this is a better record. Sticks and Stones is great too, but I just prefer this record. And that may be because this was the first record that I heard. So who knows? If I had heard Sticks and Stones first, maybe that would be my favorite record. But I love all the songs on this record. I don't think it has a bad song on it. It's kind of like a through being cool where it just goes and goes and it doesn't let up. And there's some dynamics in the record, but it's a pretty standard pop punk record with one more ballady song, similar to Enema of the State, similar to even Dookie. During the band's American tour in late 2009, they announced a special edition re-release and they did re-release this record in 2010. The re-release was for the album to celebrate its 10th anniversary because it came out in 2000. The deluxe package included new liner notes, seven b-sides, and an accompanying DVD. It also included a commemorative tour that also took place with the album played live in its entirety and they've been doing that for a while now. In recent years, the album is often cited by music critics as one of the greatest pop punk albums of all time and I would definitely agree with that and was officially inducted into the Rock Sound Hall of Fame in the year 2012. So let's talk a little bit about the background and the recording of the record. So Newfound Glory following the underground success of their debut album Nothing Gold Can Stay which came out in 1999. Hard to believe it came out just a year earlier. Drive Through Records founder Richard Ryans had paid Eulogy Recordings $5,000 to license the album and sign the band. So clearly he saw some promise and it makes sense and they probably had some money from Alistair and Phoenix TX, River Phoenix fame because those bands were making waves as well as well as RX Bandits. Drive Through had initially wanted to re-release Nothing Gold Can Stay along with a newly recorded version of the breakthrough single Hit or Miss. Chad Gilbert said of the process, we went into the studio with Jerry Finn and recorded it with him. I don't like how it came out at all. He was such a cool guy, but we were like, nah, we don't want to use it. And you can actually hear this version. They released it on the re-released version of the self-titled album. And it was fun listening to Cyrus, the drummer, talk about working with Jerry Finn on this particular song on the Krista Makes podcast. And he tells the story of how they went in to record Hit or Miss as a standalone song because they wanted to send it to radio before they actually went in to finish the record. And they didn't like how it came out because it was just too dry and it didn't have very much personality. And and then when they re-recorded it with Neil Avron, Neil Avron added some really fun ear candy and some production things that were not included in the Jerry Finn version that just really made it pop. And ultimately, I think it was a good decision on the band because Neil Avron really, I think, exploited Newfound Glory's strengths and made their album sound a little bit more chunky. It was still a very produced record and Neil Avron definitely produced them and made them a radio rock band and more of an arena rock band. But if you go back and you listen to that Jerry Finn version, it is a little bit dry and it lacks that personality. It lacks that punch that you get 
with the version that ended up being on the self-titled record. When describing it, Cyrus called it sterile. And I think that's actually a good descriptive word for it. And it matches what I heard. I guess they went in for two days to record this one song. So they hadn't even established a relationship with Jerry Finn. And just for context, this is probably massive for them to go in with this person. He was legendary at this point. He mixed Dookie. He had produced and recorded Enema of the State. He had worked on Smoking Pope's records. He did Dear You by Jawbreaker. I mean, Jerry Finn was a living legend at this point. Rest in peace. But they, for whatever reason, when they had gone in to do this one song, this one standalone track, they had not established a relationship with him. They were probably a little nervous and it just didn't come out the way they wanted it to. And ultimately, I think Newfound Glory was set apart by the production elements that they had with a different producer, different ears in Neil Avron, and Neil Avron is a different producer. So kind of funny how a pop punk legacy like this works, but still cool and fascinating and intriguing to hear about. The reissue appeared in October and was promoted with a music video for Hit or Miss. Around this time, the band took a two-week break from touring and entered the studio to record from the Screen to Your Stereo EP, which was released in March of 2000. From June 2000, the band took a six-week break from touring to record an album with producer Neil Avron, which would eventually become the self-titled record. Having met him previously, the two parties discussed the desired sound the band were striving for on the record. Neil Avron said, during pre-pro, meaning pre-production, we'd get in their van for lunch and they had a poster of Britney Spears up. They wanted the music to be heavy, but the vocals to be super pop. That was the goal, end quote. They re-recorded Hit or Miss again as they felt the increase in recording budget would help the song, and they were correct. Avron felt that less focus on the drums was better. He would be apprehensive when Cyrus Baluki came up with a fill. As a result, most of the drum parts were more laid back, quote-unquote, than Baluki had originally intended. And that's generally how it's going to go when you go in to record a major label record. They're usually not going to be doing tons and tons of fills, unless you're Seosin, of course. That's like the one exception. It's going to be a little bit more streamlined as far as the drums are concerned, because the emphasis is usually going to be more on the vocals, especially if you're trying to send a song to radio. You want it to be hooky, you want it to be catchy, you want people to be able to easily decipher what the words are and be able to sing along because that's going to create that repetition and that hit. Composition of the record. Musically, Newfound Glory, the self-titled record, has been described as pop punk, and that's what I would call it, comprising of upbeat rhythms, buzzing guitar work, and nasally vocals. And Jordan definitely solidified and perfected that nasally sound. And I think there were probably close to 10 million copycat bands that immediately came out after Afterwards. Originally, the record drew comparisons to Blink-182 and the Get Up Kids. Fun fact, the name Newfound Glory was pulled from the Get Up Kids song, A Newfound Interest in Massachusetts. So that's why they started out with A Newfound Glory, which is pretty cool. They were huge Get Up Kids fans. Chad Gilbert said the group attempted to merge the rhythm of New York hardcore with elements of West Coast punk. Cyrus, the drummer, said that the title was purposely left ambiguous as it could mean anything. Guitarist and lyricist Steve Klein originally claimed that the album was about one sole girl he dated for a year and a half, and we're not going to talk about him. <laughs> the lyrics tackle the topics of growing up, having relationships, and moving forward in life. Discussing the writing process, Cyrus and Gilbert would typically come up with a few riffs and make the outline of the song with them. And Cyrus mentions in Krista Makes Podcast that he was the one who came up with that original intro guitar line to hit or miss. He was the one that played it on guitar, and I think a lot of people assumed that was Chad who came up with that riff, but it was actually their drummer, which is pretty cool. Cyrus would then 
share it with the rest of the band or Gilbert would share it with the rest of the band and they would work together on its structure before Klein would work on the vocals and the melodies with Jordan, the singer. It gets shared with the band again for them to add the final touches. And that's usually how it goes. You've got a skeleton of a song and you bring it to the band and then they add their two cents and add their flair. The opening track, Better Off Dead, starts with a fast-paced drum and up-tempo guitar riffs. This is the one I was talking about earlier. I think if you listen to that intro, it just immediately hooks you. I like the panning of the guitars. It's really cool. And it was really ahead of its time at that point in 2000. It's hard to believe this record's 21 years old. Uh, alas, it is. Chad Gilbert said Better Off Dead was indebted to his punk and hardcore roots. And that is one of the unique things about Newfound Glory and this record in particular because they definitely pay tribute to left coast punk rock bands, bands like No Effects. Lagwagon and No Use for a Name, but there's also elements of the New York hardcore scene and the halftime breakdown type bridges and intros. I could hear it immediately and those halftime beats just made the music catchy and it was almost a hook in and of itself in a lot of these songs. It's followed by Dress to Kill, which talks about touring. Hit or Miss sees the narrator telling a story of waiting by a phone that will never ring and references Thriller by Michael Jackson. Klein wrote it after remembering things that he didn't like about his ex and debating whether it was right to break up with her. Discussing the song Sucker, Steve Klein said it was him telling the girl that inspired Nothing Gold can stay that none of the tracks on newfound glory were about her and that's pretty emo <laughs> so much spite for these exes i don't know if it's healthy boy crazy talks about the typical way girls fall in love with various guys and the closing track ballad for the lost romantics is a tongue-in-cheek number about the songs that couples listen to early on in their relationships so the release of the record we're going to talk about it the band played two shows on the warp tour they followed on a local stage and outdrew the tour's headlining act they were definitely making waves so i could imagine they probably had a big crowd at that particular warp tour in 2000 if you go to youtube and you type in 2002 warp tour the official vans warp tour documentary where they show one or two songs from all the main headlining bands newfound glory is on there and their crowd size is just absolutely massive people are going ape shit by 2002 they were basically a warped mainstay and a staple and it was pretty apparent that they were one of the biggest bands on the tour really early on on august 28th newfound glory was announced for official release Release, which was going to be the following month in September. And the group played shows with Face to Face, Saves the Day, and Alkaline Trio between late August and early October. The self-titled release was released on September 26th. In October and November, the group toured with Phoenix TX of River Phoenix fame. They had to change their name because they got sued, I believe, or threatened to sue by River Phoenix's family. And Phoenix TX, they did that tour and that was followed by a headlining tour with support from Midtown and Dashboard Confessional until mid-December. So they went on a headlining run with those two legendary acts. The band closed the year with a New Year's Eve show alongside Blink-182 and Weezer. So I'm sure this was all systems going. I would imagine they were pretty excited to be alongside those two legendary bands in their eyes, I'm sure. In January 2001, they performed at a snowboard cross competition, a benefit for a Down Syndrome charity, and a WHFS radio show. Also in the month, a music video was filmed for Hit or Miss. It was shot in Los Angeles, California and featured the real-world New Orleans actress Julie Stauffer. The group invited fans through their website to attend the filming, which resulted in over a thousand people showing up and being shut down by the LA County Fire Marshal. The video was posted online on February 15th. It showed the band attempting to get into a venue on time. It also happens to feature a lot of pop punk hair product and hairstyles. So 
fund to revisit that spiky early 2000 look. In February and March, the group supported Less Than Jake on their US headlining tour, and this was when I first saw them play. The hit or miss music video was gaining video airplay in March of that year. In April, the group went on tour with Glass Shaw, The Movie Life, and Autopilot Off, and that's a pretty legendary tour. On April 18th, the group performed Hit or Miss on Late Night with Conan O'Brien. Following this, the band went on a tour of Europe. Preceded by a performance at the K-Rock Weenie Roast, the band played the first seven shows on the Warp Tour until early July in 2001. They spent the following two months opening for Blink-182, so pretty big tour for them at that point. The other opener on that legendary tour just happened to be Alkaline Trio. So that's where Blink met Matt Skiba. Pretty crazy what's happened since then. The music video for Dress to Kill was posted online on July 24th, 2001, and it features none other than Jody and the Pussycats fame, She's All That fame, Rachel Lee Cook. Yep, she's in that music video. You can YouTube it. In August, the band performed at Edgefest 2 in Canada. Due to the September 11th attacks, two shows were rescheduled for the following week. Around this time, the band members moved out from Coral Springs, Florida to San Diego, California, except for Chad Gilbert, who moved to Los Angeles. In October and November, the band went on the Warped Inside Tour, which featured the bands RX Bandits, H2O, and River City High as supporting acts. And that's probably where Chad Gilbert became good friends with H2O. I'm sure they knew who those guys were beforehand. And he would go on to produce one of their records, which is pretty cool, and form a side project with Toby of H2O. And the side project was called Hazen Street and they put out one record. Halfway through the trek of the Warped Inside tour, Cyrus broke his arm after falling off stage, and RX Bandit's drummer Chris filled his spot, and he's an amazing drummer, so I'm sure he picked those songs up pretty quick. In December, the group went on a tour of the UK with support from Phoenix TX, so by this point, Phoenix TX was then supporting them. So it goes to show how quickly these guys became an international hit, and how quickly they became such a lauded-after band. People wanted to see them play live. So so what's cool about this record, this is one of the first records where I remember a band doing a 10th anniversary and re-releasing the album and putting demos and b-sides and everything. During late 2009, the band announced that they were planning on a commemorative tour in early 2010 to celebrate the album's 10th anniversary. A special edition re-release of the album was confirmed, which featured seven bonus tracks and a DVD, which I mentioned earlier. And soon after, in 2009, Absolute Punk officially announced the special anniversary edition of the album would be released on January 26th, 2010. 10 through Geffen Records. The additional material includes new liner notes, demos, b-sides, the Story So Far DVD, and a remix of the debut single Hit or Miss by the late Jerry Finn. And if you want to hear that version, you can go to the special re-release on Spotify, and it's there. And it's interesting to hear it, the differences. The reissue also includes a slightly altered version of the original cover art designed by Tim Stedman. It's a collage of faded photos, including images of video games, roller skates, and a Playboy magazine. And it's said to encapsulate the band members lives as teenagers when the album was written. A full tour commencing on January 29th was also confirmed, titled the 10-year anniversary of the self-titled record tour, where the band would play the record in its entirety with support from Saves the Day, Hello Goodbye, and the band Fireworks. During the tour, the band played through the records 12 songs from start to finish, followed by an extended encore with up to eight additional songs, which was probably like a greatest hits set list. So reception of the record is kind of an interesting one. Upon the album's early release, it was well received by music critics. All music writer Richie Untenberger awarded the album a favorable three and a half stars out of five. Despite stating the album wasn't entirely original, he praised the record's choppy up-tempo rhythms, spiking buzzy guitars, and youthful harmonies. He also added that there were less likable young punk bands that could have been honored with a record deal in 2000. <laughs> 
Let's see, Michael Debye of CMJ was also favorable in his review, comparing the band to Green Day, Face to Face, and Blink-182. He stated, Newfound Glory hits on a winning formula on its self-titled record. Without treading too far from the aggro path blazed years ago by bands like Dag Nasty, the quintet delivers catchy pop-punk riffs, smooth vocal harmonies, and songs that are angst-ridden without being nihilistic. These guys exude sincerity, and lyrics like The Needle on My Record Player is Wearing Thin, this record has been playing since the day you've been with him will ring true with everyone who ever wore out their Descendants records during a bad breakup. In his 8 out of 10 review for Webzine, Drowned in Sound, Martin Rivers said its songs were spellbindingly catchy, making for a polished and hugely refreshing album. And this album it is spellbindingly catchy. I would agree with that. British rock magazine Kerrang! awarded the album a maximum 5k score, describing the release as the band's essential purchase. They also wrote, marking one of the biggest and quickest improvements in alternative music, the band's major label debut hurled them to the forefront of the punk scene. Packed with infectious melodies and sing-along anthems, it would see them jostling with the likes of Blink-182 for the genre's crown. Fellow British magazine NME awarded the album 8 out of 10 and opined the band had spot-on vocal harmonies that add just the right amount of pop tinge to their relentlessly hard-charging tunes. Writing for webzine Pop Matters, Andy Argrakis was of the view that the band succeeded in writing simple, easily relatable songs that translate well in a live setting. And he was absolutely right. He also added that the band's sound runs the gamut of many of the popular punk bands of today, MXPX, Blink-182, and SR-71. Everybody remember SR-71? They had a catchy song right now. All right, and I think this album does hold a special legacy in the pop punk scene. It spawned a million copycats, as I mentioned earlier. Retrospective reviews include Ariel Castillo of the Miami New Times, who wrote a retrospective article on the album in 2010. She recalled how their self-titled second album catapulted the Coral Springs Quartet to national stardom, and it was actually five people at the time, not four. Four people now. Released before emo had become a dirty word, the disc boasted a boisterous but sensitive pop-punk mood that was reflected on its cover, perfectly encapsulating the record's lyrical and sonic dance between teenage romantic naivety and adulthood. Pop Matters writer Melissa Bobbitt, while reviewing a show on the anniversary tour, enthused, what a blessing it is to still have NFG around on this, the 10th anniversary of their self-titled record. This tour served as a collection of whimsical snapshots of their prolific career. Newfound Glory's influence is vastly felt today. A testament to that was supporting act Fireworks, whose whiplash sound and choreographed jumping all came from the pages of the NFG guidebook to pop punk. Jason Tate, the founder and CEO of LegendaryAbsolutePunk.net, wrote of the album, back when Newfound Glory's self titled album was released, there weren't many that gave it a chance to be one of the building blocks for the entire genre. However, in hindsight, it appears as though that disc may have had more of an impact than anyone ever could have guessed. And I think he's correct in stating that. I think bands like Fall Out Boy wouldn't have existed. State Champs wouldn't have existed without the early Newfound Glory records. Reviewing the 10th anniversary edition in 2010, Adam Kennedy of Rock Sound explained that the reissue was a timely reminder of their bratty pop punk beginnings. If heartfelt accounts of adolescent love and 
loss is what you're looking for. Newfound Glory, the self-titled record, is as relevant today as 10 years previous. Carange also issued a new article covering its 10th anniversary reissue. George Garner wrote, Without them, pop punk would be missing some of its most anthemic moments, and All Time Low wouldn't have their name. And he's referring to All Time Low from the fifth song on the record. From the album Sticks and Stones, Head on Collision is the song because they mention that in their lyrics, and that's where All Time Low got their band name. Writing for Sputnik Music in 2012, staff member Atari awarded the album a classic 5 out of 5 rating. He noted how, much like a thrash album, Newfound Glory's self-titled album is an adrenaline-fueled ride that doesn't slow down once throughout the entire experience. He praised the record's great sense of melody before declaring it one of the best pop-punk albums of all time. Mark Hoppus, who later produced the sixth studio album, said of Newfound Glory, it was one of those records that never found its way out of my CD player. Newfound Glory just had something different and unique. I was really drawn to their melodies, and their guitar parts were more interesting and more creative than a lot of the stuff that was going on at the time. End quote. It was also explained that when Jared Logan was producing Fall Out Boy's debut album, he asked bassist Pete Wentz about the sound the band had desired for recording. Wentz responded by handing over the first two Newfound Glory records. So clearly it influenced lots of people, even people who were blowing up and who had already blown up, like Mark Hoppus at the time. So there's plenty of accolades for the record. In November 2004, Carange released a feature called 666 Songs You Must Own. In the New School Punk category, lead single Hit or Miss was placed at number 14. Earlier in 2001, Rock Sound placed the album at a number 45 in its annual Critics Poll of 2001, while in 2012 it was formally inducted into its Hall of Fame for Rock Sound magazine. Later that year, the album again featured, this time at number 39 in the magazine's 101 Modern Classics, a list of honoring the best albums between 1997 and 2012. Ben Patishnik expressed that with this album, NFG capture the best parts of summer, the girls, the sun, the house parties, the heartache, the misery, all of the above, and cram all of that into 36 hook-laden minutes. Few bands have stayed truer to their roots as NFG over the years, and Newfound Glory started it all. The album was included at number two on Rock Sounds, the 51 most essential pop-punk albums of all time list. NME Magazine listed the the album as one of the 20 pop punk albums which will make you nostalgic. In Rolling Stone's 50 Greatest Pop Punk Albums article, Susie Exposito noted how Newfound Glory, the self-titled record, is exactly what you'd expect from a bunch of baby-faced punks who kept an altar to Britney Spears in their van, yet diva worship aside, these guys were no mouseketeers. I love the writing of some of these reviews. An export of the South Florida hardcore scene, the group took cues from neighboring punks, Discount, and even metalcore band Earth Crisis to brew combustible anthems such as the splashy opener Better Off Dead or crushed up morsels of rock candy like Lonely Tour Ballad Dressed to Kill. Ranking the album at number 6 in Loudwire's 50 Greatest Pop Punk Albums of All Time, the webzine called the album Pure Pop Punk Serotonin before declaring that NFG became the band they were meant to be with their 2000 self-titled album. And I would agree with that. That was definitely a game changer for them and for me. I remember the singer of The American Life, Sean, when we first met in high school, this is the album that we bonded over and I think about that often. We talk about this album a lot. We've talked a lot about the songs of this record, but I just want to mention some other things about the record that I absolutely love that I think are noteworthy. Starting with Dress to Kill, that lead guitar line, it is so undeniably catchy and it caught my ear immediately, the one at the very beginning. It's such a great verse and chorus in that song. Sincerely Me, that bass line might as well be an iconic bass line similar to Chick Magnet by MXPX or Longview 
Review by Green Day. Absolutely love that song. The bridge is something special. All the vocal swells and the harmonies and that bridge specifically always gave me chills back in the day and I love listening to that song. I love every song on this record, but I also really love all of the B-sides as well. There's a couple that they left off the record that I think would have added to the record, but for whatever reason, they kept them off. And then there's another B-side called Xmas, which was essentially a Christmas song, but it just sounds like another song on this particular record. And it's actually really, really good. It's got a great chorus, but it definitely has those bells at the beginning. So it definitely lends to the idea that it was a Christmas song. And I think they put it on a compilation for Christmas songs specifically. So there you have it. Newfound Glory, self-titled, a deep dive. I hope you all are doing wonderful out there beyond podcast land. Hopefully you liked this retrospective, this deep dive of this very important album in the scene. And maybe eventually we'll do a deep dive on Sticks and Stones. I'm sure that's interesting to read the behind the scenes stuff on that one as well. But this record definitely spawned a bunch of careers. And I think every pop punk band, when they first heard it in 2000, were kicking themselves for not writing something similar and not being able to capture the energy that these guys were. So yeah, let me know what you think of the record. Is this one of your favorites? Is this what you would consider a classic? Or is it blasphemous that I'm even talking about this? And maybe we should be talking about Sticks and Stones instead. Hit me up. My handle on Instagram is Kyle underscore Devlin. That's D-E-V. V is in Victor. L-I-N underscore underscore. Shoot me a message. And let's talk about this stuff. All right. Hope you all are having a fantastic day. Hope you're listening to your favorite records and having a blast. Just remember that nostalgia is good for the brain. It keeps us healthy and young and vibrant. It helps us maintain having a zest for life when we listen to our old favorite records. All right. And yeah, got some fun interviews coming up. Really excited about that. So stay tuned and I will talk to you later. Bye. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. I hope you had a good time. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to help the podcast out, if you want to do a massive solid for us here at Having a Blast, if you could just leave us a review, a five-star review would be amazing wherever you listen to podcasts. Or if you just want to recommend this podcast to a friend who might enjoy it. All right. Hope you have a wonderful day. Hope you're having a blast listening to your favorite records. I'll talk to you later. (laughs) 